Uh, now today, we are continuing our series. We started it last week. Megan did a great job starting off our Daniel series. And we always try to find a series in the spring as we head towards summer that we can really challenge our seniors as they're about to head off into whatever's next for them. But it's really a challenge for all of us. It's not just for the seniors, of course. And uh, so we, just, we landed upon Daniel and looking at the story of Daniel. Uh, and today we're calling, um, you've heard of the famous speech, Martin Luther King Jr. preaches speech. What's it called? I have, a dream. I have a dream, right? That's the name of the speech. Well, this talk is going to be called I Had a Dream because it talks about Nebuchadnezzar's dream um, in this passage, Daniel chapter 2. And uh, Megan told you last week how King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, he went and he attacked the Jews in Jerusalem, and he takes the young and the promising ones, I guess they had some kind of a pageant to figure out who to bring back with them. Uh, he takes the young and promising back to Babylon with him, and now Daniel and his friends are now living under this pagan government. Now, for you seniors, we know that no one is going to come and kidnap you and take you off to college and live in some pagan world. You're doing that of your own accord, like of your own will, right? And uh, so the, the challenge is, how do you figure out how to live in a world that may not always agree with you and what your values are and your faith? And so we're going to look at how Daniel and his friends navigate this very complex situation. And uh, they live these pure lives in front of these, these pagan people, and, but instead of it leading to persecution, it leads to promotion, at least at first. Persecution comes much later. Uh, so turn to Daniel chapter 2. We'll start in verse 1. And this is a long chapter, so we're going to summarize large portions of it so that you guys don't get lost. All right. So Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, where it says, In the second year of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the, the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Now, how many of you all have ever had a dream that wakes you up, and now you can't get back to sleep? We've all been there, right? You've been there in those situations. And this happens in Nebuchadnezzar. He's having these weird dreams. And in the ancient world, people believed that dreams were like shadows of future events and happenings. Now, let's talk about our dreams for a moment. Sometimes our dreams can be random, like really random. Like you're, like you're just building a go-kart with your ex-girlfriend, like that random. That can happen sometimes, right? And you're like, what? The that had no spiritual meaning whatsoever. I don't know what that was about. But then sometimes you have these dreams where it's like, that seemed to be significant, and I don't know what's going on there, but it seemed like a really big deal. And that's what's happening here to Nebuchadnezzar, and his dream seems really important. And so he calls in his elite special forces dream interpreters and all these people to come in to interpret the dream. Now, it says they were summoned to tell the king his dreams. Now, that could mean one of two things. It could mean that he doesn't really remember what he dreamed, and he wants them to tell him what he dreamed. Or have you, have you all been in a situation where you had a dream, and you wake up, and it's just, it's just fuzzy? You remember certain elements. 
you're like, yeah, you were there, and you were there, and you were there, but I can't recall much about it. And, and it's just, you can't remember much about it. That's, that might be what's happening here, that he's saying, I know I had a dream, and it was crazy, but I, I forgot what it was. So that could be happening, or it could be that he's saying, hey, I'm going to do a test and see how smart you special forces dream interpreters really are and see what your powers are like. It could be that as well. So he, it could be he's saying, hey, tell me the dream, and he has this argument with him later on. You'll see how this plays out. Now, um, a question that we have to wrestle with here is interesting is that God is giving this pagan king who's not a believer some revelation through dreams. And that's, I think, a pretty big deal. Because a question that people wrestle with sometimes is, what about those who never hear about Jesus or the gospel? But if you, to go off on a little tangent for just a minute, if you, if you talk to some missionaries in some of those closed countries, like in some of those Muslim areas of the world, you will hear them tell stories about Muslims coming to faith through dreams and visions. There's a book that I read. I had our, our New York team read this a few years ago. A book by a guy named J.D. Greer where he talks about uh, the gospel for Muslims. And he was in the Middle East for a number of years as a missionary. And he talks about this happening regularly where he would hear from these Muslim people. They would say, they would describe these like dreams and visions of Jesus appearing to them and coming to them in their dreams. And that was almost like a precursor to that person becoming a Christian. So I know we wrestle with the question, what about those who never hear? Which is odd because we're asking that question 2,000 years later, halfway across the world, right? That's all another topic. But God can reveal himself to anyone, whoever he wants, whenever he wants, and however he wants. And I think it's really significant that he is choosing to reveal himself some vision, some revelation to this pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar. So God reveals himself to this pagan king through these dreams, and we're going to summarize verses 4 through 13, where basically what takes place is Nebuchadnezzar issues this test, and he wants them to tell him his dream. And the Chaldeans speak up, and they say, they say, uh, well, 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 tell us the dream, and so we can interpret it. But you know how that works. If your friend told you a dream that seems significant to you, you probably could do a good job making up some deep stuff about what that dream was. You could, you, could, you could pull it off, right? So the Chaldeans are saying, well, tell us the dream first, and then we'll tell you what it means. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't fall for that. He says, no, 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 tell me the dream so I can have confidence in your interpretation. And they say to him, well, well King Nebuchadnezzar, no one, no one can do that. Only our gods have the power to do that. So Nebuchadnezzar gets really angry and he commands all the wise men of Babylon to be destroyed. And this would include Daniel and his friends. And so then Daniel gets word of this. So the head of the king's guard, so this is like the, the head secret service agent, comes to Daniel. His name is Arioch. And Daniel speaks to this man. So in, in Daniel 2, 14 to 16, it says this. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. And he declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? 
I love that question. Like, Daniel's about to be included in this, like, this quick murder of all these wise people. And his statement to this guy is, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Listen, if someone's trying to kill you, a great question to ask is, hey, hey, what's the rush? What's the rush? Right? Slow down. And just get him to stop and think about it. Right? And that's kind of what he's doing here. And then it says, then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. So we see Daniel using great wisdom as he's, even though he's young, he's using wisdom here and how to get this guy to slow things down so he can possibly go talk to the king. Now, last week, Megan taught that Daniel and his friends, although they were young, they had this, they gained great respect with King Nebuchadnezzar. And in chapter one, we saw that the king found them 10 times better than all the wise men of Babylon. Now, it seems strange then here that he wouldn't go consult with them about his dream. Maybe he forgot. Maybe he forgot how good they were at dream interpretation, and he relied only on his own people for that. So even though Daniel is young, he responds with, the words here are prudence and discretion. And those words are are associated with someone having the ability to, to lead well, to govern, to make wise decisions. In this highly stressful situation, Daniel is one who can be calm, he can be, he can be measured, he is thinking clearly, he is stable, even though there's a, a really stressful circumstance. And I think again about you guys in high school, but also as our seniors are about to graduate, um, this is what you will have to do as you step out of high school into whatever's next for you. Um, I think of the words from Paul as he, as he encourages Timothy, who's fairly young. So Paul, he kind of mentored Timothy. Timothy was kind of young in the faith and young in age as well. And there's this really important verse in 1 Timothy chapter uh, 4, verse 12, where it says, where Paul's writing these words to Timothy, and he says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. And Paul's talking to Timothy about how to conduct himself in front of other believers so they won't look down on him because of his youth. And he covers these five different areas of his life. He says speech, so how you talk, conduct, in your actions, in love, so how you love people, in faith, like how you display your faith in your life, and then in purity as you, as you live your life out in front of other believers and even unbelievers as well. So think about these five aspects of your life as, as some of you guys graduate and go to whatever's next for you. I think at times you're tempted to, to, to gain respect in other ways, whether it be with other believers or even unbelievers. Um, but if you walk in humility in these five areas of your life, you have this, it can have this way of gaining the respect of other believers in your lives. And so the question for you and me, the question for you all is, how do you do that in your life now? And how will you do that when you leave here and go on to something else? So Daniel's in this pagan environment, and he gains the respect of unbelievers. And I, I don't mean to say that if you live in these ways, that you're going to, like, climb the ladder of success, and these unbelievers will suddenly just respect you. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they persecute you. So the challenge for you is to, 
is to be obedient and let God sort out the rest. You're going to see that Daniel's, the, the, um, the pagan people's response to them, it fluctuates. It doesn't always work out for them, right? And you'll see that as the story plays out. So we're going to go back to Daniel 2, and I'm going to summarize for you verses 17 to 30, this big section. So Daniel, he goes back home, he tells his friends, and he says, he says we, can, we can interpret the king's dream. And he, he says to his friends, he says, let's, let's pray and seek mercy from God so that we won't be destroyed by this king. So during the night, God reveals this mystery to Daniel in probably another dream and vision for him. And he wakes up, and he responds with this praise song to God. And he responds in this way to God. Now, Daniel then goes to, to Arioch, who's the, the captain, like the Secret Service head guy, and he says, let me show the king the interpretation of the dream. So Arioch brings him in to the king. And when Daniel goes in to see the king, instead of him like pounding his chest and saying like, yeah, let me, let me show you the interpretation of this dream and I know what I'm doing, he gives glory to God as he stands in front of that king. That's the first thing that he does. Then he begins to explain, as we'll see here in a moment, what this dream really means. He tells the king that God has given him a picture of future kingdoms. And uh, so, even though if you go back to chapter 1, it says that we know that Daniel and his friends are really good at interpreting dreams and visions. So we know that Daniel's already gifted at that. He has a talent for that given to him by God. But we also see in this situation that he cries out to God for mercy. And he still relies upon God in this instance, even though it's something that he knows he's gifted at. So I want you to think about that for just a moment. He challenges his friends to pray and seek God's mercy. So Daniel and his friends, Daniel does not, he doesn't over-rely on his gifts, but he relies on God as the source and the strength of those gifts. So you might say it like this, don't allow your gifts to crowd out the one who gave you those gifts. Listen, when I, I've been doing some reflection just in my own personal life, just, I mean, spirit, spiritually, and, and um, which is good for anyone to do, right? But especially when you're in leadership, some kind of a leadership role, as you age in that leadership role, I will tell you that the first few times I stepped on this stage to, to speak sermons in front of junior high kids, then eventually high schoolers, um, it's usually a terrifying experience, but listen, when I first started out, I recognized how much I had to depend on God because I felt like I had nothing to offer. But then over the years, you begin to like, you know, gain some wisdom, gain some experience, gain some knowledge, and, and after a while, you feel like, you know what, I can, I can get by. And you start to think of yourself like, I can, I can just tap into my experience, my knowledge, my wisdom over the years. And, and I can pull it off. And that's kind of how we think of ourselves when it comes to these kinds of things. And so sometimes I think we're tempted towards that. And I think as you guys, many of you guys have natural gifts and abilities, right? And, and, and you already start to feel like in yourself, you know, I got this. This is my seventh year doing impact. I got this. I'm good at this. I have a natural gift towards these things. And it's so easy for us to think, you know, if we're, if we're naturally good at something, I don't need God. I don't need to depend on him for anything. And that's not what Daniel does here. 
That's not what Daniel does here. He, he's been gifted by God in these areas, but he still sees this need to depend on him. And he spends the night praying and crying out to God for mercy, for God to reveal the stream to him. So here's the uh, picture of the statue, what it may have looked like in his mind as he saw this dream. And listen, we're going to talk about this. Um, we'll talk about the interpretation in just a minute. But the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has is really strange. He sees this statue, and the statue has this, this head of gold, and it's got this chest and arms of silver and a torso and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and then the feet are partly of iron and clay, a mixture of the two. Now, as Nebuchadnezzar looks at this statue in his dream, there is a stone that's cut out, not cut out by human hands, and thrown onto the feet of the statue, and the whole structure was destroyed and then blown away by the wind. That's the vision that he had in that, that evening. But then that stone, it, it turns into a mountain, and it fills up the whole earth. That's a pretty weird dream for someone to have, but that's what he sees. And then in verse, verses 36 to 43, you're gonna, if you look in your Bibles, you're going to see the interpretation. And I'll make this very brief. So Daniel says to him, he says, hey, listen, he goes, he goes, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. And when it comes to the interpretation, um, Daniel doesn't name the empires here, but when you look at, at commentators, some will say that they link these different parts of the statue with different empires throughout history. And listen, I'm not going to say to you that that is the absolute way you have to view this vision. There's other ways of looking at it but it's too much for us to get into here. But there are quite a few people that do link those world empires with different aspects of the vision. And so I put that up there not to say this is exactly how it is, but this is a way that some look through history and see this, this vision playing out historically. Now, so he says, listen, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to yours is going to arise. That's silver. And a third kingdom is bronze, and it's going to rule over the, the, all the earth. And then a fourth kingdom, iron, is going to crush all those other kingdoms, something that was Rome. But then there's a fifth kingdom, which is like a mixed, will be partly strong and partly brittle. And some people think that symbolizes just all the world's empires after Rome. Because if you notice, many governments since then have kind of had a mixture of some Roman, some Greek, right? And, and, and kind of been based on some of those principles. And so you might say that in this statue represents all of the world's kingdoms in history. Not just the four that you see there, four or five that you see there, but all. So, um, so I don't want you to get bogged down in just the names of how we link that together. But here's the big idea that I think that he's trying to get across here. And it's very simple. Is that God is in control despite present circumstances. Go to my next slide. There we go. Uh, so this is true on a large scale. It's true on the world empire, empire scale. So think of some places in the world where it, it would seem like really scary for someone to live right now. You know what those places are in your minds. Um, where there's this great conflict or power that seems immovable in the world today. But as powerful and as scary as those places may seem, they're temporary. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar is, is seeing here. They're temporary. They don't have ultimate authority or, authority or power. But I want you to think that it's, it's not just true in a large scale, 
but it's also true on a small scale. Because some of you have some very difficult circumstances that you live in, whether it's in your family, whether it's some aspect of school, a sports team that maybe you're on, um, maybe someone who's not a believer or maybe not really a good leader is in charge in a situation, and it's not a good situation, and you feel helpless to do anything about it. But here's the good news. This is true on a large scale and a small scale, is that God knows about it, and ultimately any earthly kingdom, whether it's the government of a country or something much smaller, God is eventually going to destroy all evil that's human-centered. He's going to take care of all of it, large scale, small scale. And so when you look at the dream as described by Daniel, I want you to think of it from King Nebuchadnezzar's perspective for a minute. Because he, he first hears that he is, you know, he's the head of gold. And he's thinking highly of himself. He's like, yeah, that's right, gold. That's the most valuable metal. That should be me. But then Daniel says, but you're going to be replaced by silver, a lesser metal. So he's thinking, wait, I'm going to be replaced by, by a second-class metal? So on the one hand, he's thinking, you know, yeah, this is, this is good. I'm, I'm, I'm the gold, right? I'm the, I'm the head. I'm gold. But then realizes, wait, something inferior to me is coming after me, and it's going to replace me. He's going to be replaced by an inferior kingdom. So King Nebuchadnezzar, he is this, this tyrant. He's seeking world domination. He has all the power, and, if, and with one word, he could take out anyone's life, and he's about to do it here with these wise men. He says, if you can't tell me my dream, then you're going to be killed. And then after Daniel builds him up, he then says, you're going to become a spectator on the world stage. So look at Daniel again. Even though he's young in the situation, he's not afraid to speak truth to power. We see them, him doing that here. Then skip all the way to the end, toward the end, in, in Daniel chapter 2, 44 to 45, where it says this. And in those days of those, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. So notice the progression of the materials. The value of each one decreases, but the strength of each one increases. But they become more and more brittle over time. So no, no matter their beauty or their strength, the stone shatters them all. So who's the stone? Church answers are appropriate. Who is the stone? Jesus, right? And so we, we believe that this is the stone. This is the stone's being described here. So how do we know? Over in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are giving a sermon, and they are yelling at some of the Jewish religious leaders, and they say, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And then in Acts 4.12, it says this, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Jesus would be the stone that would take down the world's empires, but the Jewish leaders didn't realize something. 
and this is really important, that he would also take down their empires, their empires of control, their empires of legalism, their empires of hatred, their empires of self-righteousness. And so Peter invites the religious to put their faith in Jesus in Acts chapter 4. You know, we did a, a little survey about a month and a half ago with you guys, and it, it showed, I appreciate your honesty, it showed that about maybe like 20% or so in this room uh, would not claim to follow Christ. And I will say, I love that you're in here, and I love that you're honest about where you're at. And we do that survey because I want to just see, like, who's sitting in front of us. And so at least about 20% of you all would say, I'm not really sure if I call myself a follower of Christ, or I, I would not call myself that right now. And there's different categories of how you might think of yourself in that regard. But we would also say that there's probably some in here that maybe you think you're a believer, and maybe you think that being a Christian, you're just a Christian because you attend church, or because you prayed a prayer when you were four years old, and we keep saying it over and over, like the, that activity a decade ago or however long ago it was, that's not the thing that makes someone a Christian. We're saved by belief and faith, true belief and true faith. And so I would say the number is probably a little bit higher than that as far as uh, people that may not be believers that are sitting in here. But the appeal that Peter makes to the religious in Acts chapter 4 we make the same appeal to you today. The, 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 the same appeal, which is repent and believe and put your faith and trust in Jesus and his finished work for you on the cross. We make the same appeal to you today. And we do it, I think, in some way every week, making this invitation to you to come into a, into a right relationship with Jesus that cannot be earned by something that you have done in and of yourself. And so look with me at... Um, Daniel chapter 2, last few verses, 46 to 47. And I wish that we could say this next scene was somebody doing that, someone truly repenting, but it's really not, as you're going to see the rest of the book play out. In Daniel 2, 46 to 47, it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. So King Nebuchadnezzar, he goes and he gives Daniel many gifts. Gives him a promotion by putting him over all the wise men of Babylon. He promotes Daniel's friends. And King Nebuchadnezzar, he seems to repent, at least on the outside. But as we're going to see later, he doesn't. So he's someone that believes, he believes God exists. But what he's done is he's just adopted this 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 Israelite God into his pantheon of gods. And he just adds it. He's like, oh, he's, he must be the king of kings, the, the, the God of all gods, the most powerful God. So it's not true repentance here. He believes God exists. He is doing actions of worship. Notice it says he pays homage to Daniel, not necessarily God. He's doing actions of worship, but doesn't have a heart that truly worships God. If you boil it all down, his worship seems based on these circumstances. This man, Daniel, came through for me in a pinch, and so he seems to have this, what looks like worship on the outside, 
with Daniel's God, but it's false. And I wonder how often you and I do the exact same thing, where God seems to come through for us in a pinch, and you go through a season of life and you think, oh, yes, 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 I I worship God, I worship Jesus, I follow him. But it really is based on this circumstance, this thing you walk through, this thing you experience. And maybe God did come through for you in a pinch, and and you felt the results of that. So often when I talk to students and I say, hey, just share with me your story of, of, you claim to be Christian, that's great. Tell me your story. And so often I'll get these stories, which I get it, I'm not trying to judge, but I'll get these stories that just are like, yeah, I, my grandma passed away, and I just needed God, and, and God came through for me. And I'm like, I'm so glad, because God is a great comforter. He is a comfort. He comforts us in our affliction. But I didn't hear anything about, like, yeah, I recognized I was a sinner in need of a Savior, and, and I needed him to save me from my sin. And, and I turned to him in, in faith and trust and belief to have his righteousness applied to me at salvation. And listen, I understand at times, like, you just don't know how to put words to it. I get that. But that's what we're here to help you with. And so I encourage you this morning as you guys get into your discussion, think about in your own life, examine your own life, your own faith. What are the ways in which I might be just giving God, paying God homage, even just temporarily right now? Because he seemed to come through for me in a tough situation. And ask yourself, is that, is that true saving faith? Or what is taking place there in your own heart, in your own mind? You guys are going to head to your breakouts. And so we've got um, discussion sheets.